Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. Jenna, first, good morning. Great to be with you, the queen of talk radio in America. The left does not want to honor our freedoms, and we have a responsibility to fight back. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. Fill that void with a vision that runs so deep that it dilutes the woke agenda. Well, thank you, Jenna. Right from the beginning, I knew you, so it's an honor to be with you, and you're doing really well. Proud of you. Former legal counsel to President Trump, Alice. Well, good morning. And as we continue to talk about truth in community and how we live together and form a more perfect union in our civil government sphere, in our church government sphere, and our family government, uh, there's a headline that is quite fascinating in an article that you absolutely need to read. That is in AmericanMind.org, titled, Big Tech Poses a Formidable Challenge to Maintaining Self-Government in the Digital Age. This is a really fascinating uh, thesis and question of the more that we are given to technology that is uh, really pushing us to create our lives around technology has reinforced to us, how are we interacting with each other or are we interacting with each other in person? We all lived through the uh, <clears throat> the COVID pandemic and uh, there were several months that it was just amazing to me how difficult it was to not see people in person on a regular basis, even if that was uh, you know, think people that you didn't even know that you just you know bumped into at at the grocery store or um, you know Walmart or something. And so um, this this whole conversation, not only about artificial intelligence, but big tech and how it's created a digital environment for humans, um, is is a very fascinating conversation that definitely has a constitutional implications, but theological implications as well. So joining me now is our good friend Jake Denton, who is. Uh, the Heritage Foundation's uh, Tech Policy Advisor, and he is one of the co-authors of this piece. Again, it's called Big Tech Poses a Formidable Challenge to Maintaining Self-Government in the Digital Age. So, uh, Jake, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so um, so this is this is really fascinating. And so from the uh, challenge to maintaining self-government, uh, what in your mind are really the risks that uh, Big Tech poses? Yeah, well, I think it all really starts at, at a young age, right? So now kids are growing up with the device as early as six months old. We're putting them in front of a TV or an iPad, and it scales. And a lot of the times, you know, parents or, you know, just the individual believes their interactions with these devices are harmless. Uh, but they all carry a message, and they all have uh, serious consequences. And I, I think that's where it begins to be a danger for self-governance. Um, ultimately, you're receiving a message. Uh, it's a very um, specific message. You're getting something that has been designed to resonate with you. And oftentimes, it doesn't really occur to you that you're receiving that. And so these Silicon Valley tech companies uh, have a direct line to your you know, value systems. They have a deep understanding of what you believe, and they can basically use that against you to push you down a certain path. And so um, starting as a child, when you, you're given these devices, uh, you basically climb an addiction ladder. And by the time you're of voting age or, you know, you're a young adult, it's very hard to get out of that environment. And those messages just become more powerful. 
And that is where, you know, the danger to, to self-governance really arises. Yeah. And, and you highlight um, the director of the Center for Child Health Behavior and Development in this article um, at Seattle Children's Research Institute that said the purveyors of games and apps are very well aware that they're monetizing our children's attention. And that quotation uh, really stood out to me in reading this piece because uh, we think that tech is there to help us to make our lives easier. And sometimes it does. But we do have to assess uh, the risks and the dangers, especially to children, because these aren't harmless. They, As you said, they do have a message and intent and, and ultimately uh, a monetization value and, and even more dangerous than that, a worldview. And so when we have our children growing up with believing that uh, very online, um, like Instagram and you know, some of these things actually mirror reality when they don't, we're creating a whole generation that has a skewed view of reality and also isn't interacting uh, with each other in person in the same way that previous generations throughout human history always did. I remember growing up and when, you know, you were playing with your friends, um, it was in person and it wasn't a, you know, you had a fully online relationship. I mean, and, and now some of my friends um, who I've met through, you know, social media, um, through the political world or, you know, whatever, um, it could be years before I, or if ever, that I ever meet them in person, which I find just totally wild. And as adults, we can, and hopefully we do, assess and appreciate the nature of that distinction and are very, um, very conscious of our decision making. But when it comes to kids, and especially kids who've never uh, lived outside of this tech bubble that we now Uh, find ourselves in that becomes really dangerous and has, I think, some really damaging effects on um, our future in terms of what our children will expect from a moral and upright society. That's absolutely correct. You know, even the most well-intentioned parent who's giving the child the device because they believe it has educational value is causing really irreversible harm to the child's cognitive development and to their social skills. Um, You know, that quote you mentioned about the monetization of attention from the article uh, is kind of lost on most parents. I think, you know, oftentimes we put the device in front of the child or the TV, put the child in front of the TV, and we just think that everything is innocent and there is really, you know, no ulterior motive to the content that they're interacting with. But the reality is that many of these applications, many of these, uh, you know, production companies contract with psychologists, and try and design a color palette or a type of content uh, that will capture the attention of the child for the purpose of pushing advertisements and really monopolizing their attention. And as this scales upward, it moves away from being, um, you know, just a more innocent content stream of, you know, maybe a, a silly game that you just continue to tap on the screen to more targeted messages that they can actually, um, you know, apply in their day-to-day lives. And You're absolutely right when it comes to this kind of weird social environment that we're finding ourselves in as well. Uh, You know, oftentimes these kids, uh, you know, enter uh, primary school or middle school, and they really don't have any investment in the physical world because the majority of their lives have unfolded online. And, you know, COVID really only expedited this process. Uh, You know, you're entering your, you know, core development stage of your life where you're supposed to make friends, you're supposed to learn about, you know, who you are. Uh, and it all unfolds digitally. Um, and through these really strange augmented environments, you know, maybe your kid's a, 
plays Fortnite or Roblox, and their whole social circle exists entirely within that game. Uh, there's really no telling what this will look like when this generation finally reaches voting age or, you know, when they're just in their 30s trying to form a family. Um, things are going to look very different than they do right now. And if you think about how crazy things are now, that's even a, a very scary thing to think about, that it could get uh, – you know, even more augmented and even more pulled away from the physical world. Yeah, it, it is really scary. And you also write in this article uh, that parents could prevent their teenagers from using social media, but doing so comes at an increasingly high cost. If all your teenage daughter's friends are on social media, as they almost certainly are, she will feel cut out of her circle and suffer social exclusion. And, and I think this is uh, a great way to to consider the fact that, you know, a lot of parents will just say, okay, you know, you can't have uh, Facebook or Twitter or anything until, you know, you're 18. Um, and and to me, that seems like, and, and I don't have kids right now, but at, at least it seems like in thinking how that might have affected me growing up, then going to college, that's just something else that is new that um, you would then, as an 18-year-old that isn't really all that grown up in terms of decision making will then have to navigate and not uh, be aware and be savvy. And I would think it would be better to have some uh, parental guardrails and parental oversight in stepping through and wading through some of these social media platforms and the online um, awareness and existence before uh, kids leave the home, before they go to college and, you know, encounter everything that uh, that they have to in terms of worldview there. And so it is difficult uh, for parents. And so where do you um, see the maybe happy medium if there is one? Because we do have to deal with the fact that so much of our culture is online um, and we can't just force it to be all in person and physical. Otherwise, we may be handicapping our um, our children's ability to actually move forward in where the direction of culture is going. Yeah, you know, I have this conversation with parents constantly uh, because oftentimes they properly diagnose their children as being depressed as a result of their kind of uh, media consumption, things that they're seeing on Instagram, TikTok, you know, any of these given platforms. Um, you know, some of these content streams, their For You pages are horrifying. They're seeing people uh, killed in the street or beat up, uh, committing suicide, encouraging, uh, you know, eating disorders. They're all things that kids are just swiping through on their own and having to navigate at a very young age. And, you know, the parent goes, uh, you know, obviously this is what's leading to my kid's depression or anxiety, um, so I should pull away their accounts. I should make them log off. But then that might also lead to anxiety or depression. And it puts the parent in kind of this uh, state of paralysis where uh, they really don't know what the best decision is. And they're kind of left hopeless. There isn't someone to turn to for that answer. Um, you know, many will say they just have to own up to, you know, the harms of social media and try and give them the best tools. Um, when oftentimes the answer truly is to just pull them off the platform. And yes, it might cause a short term reaction. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're addicted. And it's the exact same process that you'll see, you know, a drug addict go through when it comes to detoxing. And, you know, if you want your child to experience these platforms and be connected to their peers, they have to start off early with kind of the right foundation. Otherwise, it goes awry very quickly. Um, you know, they should only be allowed to consume the platform or consume the content of their friends in the real world. They shouldn't be using these to explore and find new people, influencers or content creators that could be pushing all sorts of messages to them. Um, but oftentimes, that's not even an option on the platform when it comes to parental controls. 
The parental controls on platforms like Instagram and TikTok are very anemic. They don't give the parent really any control. Um, and it was really just done to appease lawmakers to try and push back child protection legislation. And so, and, you know, in the short term, uh, the immediate right now, your kid's struggling with this. The answer very well might be to just pull them offline. Um, and you have to replace that community they had digitally with something in the physical. You know, take them to church, uh, have them join a club. There's ways to have that same type of community, uh, but in the real world. And that's oftentimes what kids are really lacking and why they have these problems. Yeah, absolutely. And and obviously the, the main answer is is more involvement uh, in a good local church and having more people um, around the family that uh, does support what parents um, are trying to do, which is hopefully to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And it, this does become uh, even more increasingly difficult as parents have to navigate some of these things that uh, parents previously didn't have to. I mean, there, there are always things in the culture and and Christians being counterculture will always have these types of challenges. But this type of immediate access, uh, Jake Denton, to so many things, I mean, including pornography, including, you know, as you mentioned, some of these videos that show, you know, horrific, violent content. I mean, these are things that you'd have to, uh, you know, go purposefully try to find and and hopefully weren't attainable uh, for young kids that are just so immediately accessible um, online. And, you know, and, and you mentioned as well um, how, you know, the, a solution is to just pull pull people um, or pull children away from social media and that they go through kind of that withdrawal. I mean, that we've seen that historically just in the gaming world as well. And it was interesting. Um, my sister-in-law was talking about the last time that um, my, my whole family was at Disney World, how much so many of those entertainment experiences are increasingly screen-based instead of, you know, physical interactions or like the old school animatronics and some of those things were increasingly just going to screens and stories and messages that um, really aren't, I don't think, you know, helpful um, to continuing to help parents with this type of message. Um, so we are already out of time, but I really appreciate your insights here, um, Jake Denton. And uh, you can follow Jake Denton at Real J Denton on Twitter if uh, you as parents happen to be online. And the piece is called uh, Big Tech poses a formidable challenge to maintaining self-government in the digital age. You can find it at AmericanMind.org. I'd really encourage everyone read through this entire piece. It has some really good observations and uh, take that and apply it to your uh, family unit and making the best decisions that you can for your children and their immediate social circles. Uh, being online has consequences, even including with uh, the, the 2024 presidential election. Um, political Twitter is a lot of vitriol. And we're actually going to talk about that coming up in the next segment right after this. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, for those of you who have been following the 2024 primary uh, very much online, uh, first of all, I'm sorry for all of us who have to be on Twitter. Um, you know, Twitter Twitter is one of those things that's a, a great thing, but it's also uh, sometimes just so incredibly negative. Um, I like being snarky on Twitter sometimes, um, actually quite a lot, and I like following things and stories. But uh, one of the things that has defined this 2024 primary more, I think, than uh, really any in in recent uh, history, even more than 2016, anything, is uh, how much 
there is so much vitriol going on between the Trump campaign, the DeSantis campaign, and uh, basically everybody who is firmly in one camp or another. And so there are a lot of different online attacks that um, I think is absolutely appalling. Um, There's a lot of vile content, uh, frankly, mainly coming from the Trump campaign to former Trumpers, uh, to DeSantis people. But but in fairness, this is a lot of people on all sides, uh, but certainly not... Uh, conservatives and people who are trying to put country above uh, personality politics. Uh, But one of the things that I saw online was from our good friend Steve Deese, who said that in Iowa, uh, some mailers are going out that the headline is uh, Donald Trump stood up for marriage equality and trans rights. And it has this rainbow kind of BLM fist pictured and it says, contact President Trump at office45.com and tell him to keep fighting for LGBTQ rights. And uh, this didn't have any, uh, it, it, no one took credit for it other than it has the paid for by advancing our values and a Des Moines, Iowa uh, address. And so, of course, uh, initially, the DeSantis campaign was blamed for uh, putting out this mailer and trying to uh, to basically provoke voters in Iowa into thinking that uh, this was more of a smear tactic. And uh, so now there is an article in TimCast.com. And if you're also uh, a fan of podcasts and and very online, then, uh, you know, Tim Pool and uh, TimCast News. And the headline is, Anti-Trump Iowa Attack Blamed on DeSantis Campaign is Linked to Shadowy Democrat Activist Network. So Adrian Norman, who is a good friend of mine, is the author of this piece. He's a news writer and political commentator. He's been a contributor at Newsweek, The Epic Times, The Federalist, uh, The Daily Caller, Western Journal, all of the conservative outlets that uh, we love and read. And he can be reached on Twitter at Adrian Norman DC. And he joins me now. So, um, Adrian, I thought this was actually really great of you to write this piece and kind of correct the record. So what did you find out in in researching where this mailer came from? I was well, first off, thanks for having me on. Um, I was interested in the story because, you know, I was, I was out of town. I was out of the country for a week, and then I came back, and this is one of the first things that I saw when I got back online. And a lot of big accounts were tweeting about this story. And, and one of the general rules that I sort of have now when it comes to social media is if I see something that is overly sensational, it seems like it, it – can't possibly it's just so on the nose it can't possibly be true it's probably not so my, my initial reaction was not to share the post or just accept it at face value and the things that people were saying because you know immediately the DeSantis campaign got blamed for this uh i wanted to dig into it a little bit and kind of see what was actually going on with this so i took a look at the ad a couple things struck me there was only one um photo of the ad that was being shared you know if you have a mailer that's going out to tens of thousands of people this is social media right Dozens of people are going to post that they got this and that's what's going on. It's going to have an address and a name that's going to be scratched out with a pen. Uh, it's going to have the barcode from the U.S. Postal Service because it actually got mailed. This particular flyer had none of these things. So immediately it was suspect. The only image that people were shared traced back to uh, one single blog, an Iowa political blog that looks like it might have left-leaning connections because it's the same name, Heartland, uh, as one of the companies that we sort of trace this back to, which I'll get into in a second. Uh, there were just a lot of anomalies with this particular flyer that made it seem like it wasn't true. So um, I read through some posts on Twitter, did some of my own research, 
and found that, yes, this Advancing Our Values organization, who it was attributed to, just registered their name a few weeks ago with the Secretary of State of Iowa. But there's no other information about this organization anywhere. Nothing's listed on Federal Election Commission reports. Um, nothing is listed as far as connecting them with, uh, you know, campaigns or expenditures or anything. The, the the address that was used was registered by a just a general company that files uh, articles of incorporation for various companies that people can remain anonymous. So the address that was used actually ties to 96 separate individual companies. You know, the company that registered uh, this was Cogency Global. So they, they work with people all over the world registering these things. So there's, there's, there's no, uh, there's no, there's nothing showing that this ad even came from Iowa. The person who's listed under the articles of incorporation for the organization actually lives in Omaha, Nebraska. He doesn't even live in Iowa. And uh, another person posted uh, one of the, that one of the addresses linked to this, uh, one of the companies listed to this address, rather, excuse me, is a a left-leaning organization, right? And they're tied to other left-leaning organizations. It's, 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 you know, they work with Progress Iowa, a progressive organization with 100,000 members. Um, these, so, so the likelihood is that uh, this was put out by somebody who is on the left in order to sort of smear the DeSantis campaign, because obviously this would be attributed to the DeSantis campaign. And this is just messy politics to sow more discord and division on the right. And it's, uh, it's it's interesting to me that so many people just accepted this at face value without even a modicum of challenge and pushback on this particular narrative. I mean, this was shared by people who have millions of followers. And I think when we jump to conclusions like this, it really does a disservice to the entire movement. And it just muddies the waters and makes things even more divisive than they need to be. Yeah, so well said, Adrian. And, you know, as you're uh, describing the uh, the anomalies and and the things that you know if this were actually mailed um, there would be a postage stamp there would be you know that address that's blocked out and um, and I'm looking at the photo that's on your piece and and you're right the none of those things and and this looks like you know just a a photo of this and um, and so I think that the lesson here really is that people need to not take things at face value and just assume that they can blame the DeSantis campaign or the Trump campaign or whoever is the purported uh, campaign or or network that is pushing this out so that we don't fall prey to some of these dirty political tactics. And, you know, I mean, and is that just kind of my impression that this is um, an even more vitriolic uh, primary cycle than I think we've ever seen in the past? Um, Or has that been your impression? And I kind of largely attribute that to the meteoric rise of political Twitter and how um, I, I think that uh, Devin Nunez, actually, who, who is the CEO of True Social, described it to me one time as, you know, Twitter is just kind of like the, the PR newswire where people just, you know, put out things that they want to get picked up by media. And so it's it's an easy way for anonymous accounts or big accounts to push stuff that uh, isn't really necessarily um, fact based, but it's it's easy to smear each other um, on Twitter much more than it would be if you're going on a um, a news hit or you're coming on an interview where there's a, at least a modicum of professionalism. But does does it seem that way to you? That'd be a, an accurate assessment. I mean, it, it's you know, it's a medium that, for, for for better and worse, I guess, allows information to be shared with a wide range of people almost instantaneously. 
So we do have uh, the the rise of political Twitter, and it's it's people are incentivized to get information out there first, not necessarily to get information out that's accurate. And those incentives are, you know, in terms of uh, in terms of clicks, in terms of being able to grow your base to maybe monetize your your account for merch sales and those sorts of things. So that has uh, somewhat of an influence. I think that the cycle in general is a lot more vitriolic just because of the nature of uh, the candidates. You know, we have Donald Trump, who let's let's face it. I mean, he endured the most hostile political environment of any political operative uh, within a, in, in, in recent memory, possibly in U.S. history, right? The guy didn't get a fair shot during his first term. He was attacked at every single turn. And there are a lot of women in the base who agree that he needs to have a second term to sort of to sort of right the ship and to give him a fair shot at being able to govern the country without all that interference. Um, so people who are not backing him are going to be attacked as traitors, and they're called rhinos and all sorts of the, you know, the, the, all the names that you see online. And I think that's driving a lot of the hostility. It's just this loyalty, knowing that he was so abused and disrespected his entire time in office. Yet and still, this is America, and people have a right to support who they want to support. Other candidates have a right to challenge. That's just the nature of the free country. But um, just because of, uh, the, you know, the nature of social media, I think it's 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 gotten way more hostile than we've seen in past cycles. And I don't think there's any reason to suspect that that's going to change in the near future. Yeah, which I think is really uh, sad, ultimately, as a commentary on uh, those of us who should be conservatives in the overall uh, Republican Party, or at least the overall uh, people who who would self-identify as as conservatives. And I'm talking with Adrian Norman, who's an author, news writer, and political commentator. You can reach him on political Twitter <laughs> at Adrian Norman DC. And um, and I think you're absolutely right, Adrian, that there is such a loyalty base with President Trump because. Because um, he was absolutely uh, abused and persecuted and targeted uh, by all of these witch hunts, by all of these things, even before he took office. And we all know that. And I mean, I was there for, uh, you know, everything from the first impeachment all the way through uh, to the end. And actually, you know, even before that, um, before I started working for him directly, uh, was on media and, you know, on all of the national networks um, advocating for him, for conservatism and for his presidency, um, you know, for I was very impressed with his very first uh, Supreme Court pick, uh, Justice Gorsuch, who I think has overall done a fantastic job. Um, and so, you know, so there are a lot of us who are, who see that. And yet it's ironic to me that the people who are incredibly loyal still aren't making the argument for a a re-election of President Trump in a meaningful and substantive way, they're simply attacking DeSantis supporters, Ramaswamy supporters, anybody who isn't just 100% loyal to Trump and willing to attack other candidates. And so they're doing the same thing to their fellow conservatives that they hated that the left did to Donald Trump. And some of these people, I can't honestly tell the difference between some of these comments from people online that that are different from leftists. I mean, it, you know, it, they use the same kind of uh, logical fallacies. They use, use the same kind of name calling. They use the same kind of uh, vulgar vitriol. And some of these people, um, unfortunately, are actually uh, either consultants for the Trump campaign or they have been recognized by the Trump campaign and whether they're paid or not, 
um, you know, whether they get ki- some kind of kickback and in, in, uh, incentive. You know, these are people who are showing up at Mar-a-Lago events, taking pictures with President Trump, uh, being retweeted by um, his official campaign accounts. And so, you know, obviously this is something that the Trump campaign is actually encouraging. And President Trump himself, you know, obviously is, is no stranger to, to the name calling. But what I find very different about this is that when in 2016, when Donald Trump was calling uh, his his fellow candidates some of these names and calling out some of those things, it was actually based in fact. And it was what regular voters and honest people were saying, yeah, you're calling out the swamp for being, you know, this elite swamp in Washington, where his name calling against Ron DeSantis just isn't based in fact. And that's what I find really frustrating. I think you're right that it's not going to change, but I hope that a lot of us uh, who care about this country, who care about free and fair elections in a primary, will actually substantively look at some of the accusations against Ron DeSantis, who's been a great governor for for Florida, and say, you know, I can support Donald Trump without being willing to trash Ron DeSantis. So, I mean, do, do you see that at least being convincing to regular voters who aren't so much online? I've talked to, and that's a good distinction to make because real life isn't always social media. You know, we're sort of in a bubble with uh, our groups on the right and also on the left. And, you know, I think any, really just anybody online. I mean, we, we choose who we follow. We have algorithms that decide what we see, how frequently we see it. So we, we are in somewhat of an echo chamber. Real life is also is often counter to that. And the people that I've spoken with in real life regarding the things that are happening politically right now seem to be really, really put off. <clears throat> Excuse me by the fact that uh, the campaigning has gotten so hostile, they're tired of the name-calling. They want to see these two men d- debate and discuss on the actual issues and engage voters on their platforms, on the things that are going to improve their lives. They're very similar in a lot of ways, so I think some of this hostility is, is to be expected because when you're very similar on, on policy, what do you have to go to that's going to separate you from the other candidate? And a lot of that's going to be personality. So I think just because they're... They're so similar. Some of this was to be expected because there's not much that they could could differ on policy-wise uh, on a lot of major issues. So, but again, the 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 general sentiment that I'm seeing tends to be that this divisiveness is dividing voters and pushing people away from the Trump camp because they're just tired of the hostility. Um, one other quick point I'd like to make, and and it speaks to how this issue got started, is when when we. We'd like to say that we on the right are facts over feelings, but there are numerous occasions where we elevate things online that simply aren't true, like this ad and and it being attributed to the DeSantis campaign, even though it it very clearly most likely wasn't, right? This happened a month ago, where uh, a lot of people were tweeting that at UC Berkeley, they had a black-only graduation and that we were returning to the days of Jim Crow and segregation and everybody was outraged and they had millions of uh, retweets and likes and the, the engagement was through the roof. And lo and behold, I mean, it took me three minutes to find out it wasn't yeah, true. Yeah, to find out it's false. Research. Yeah, and, and Adrian Norman, we got to leave it there. That is such a great point. And so we need to do the investigation ourselves, not just automatically believe or automatically amplify stories that we just see. So we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. Speaking truth with love. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Welcome back. And we have been talking about being 
to online as a culture, as Christians, as uh, parents looking at supervising their children being too online and political Twitter and all of these things. And, you know, really it becomes a question of how do we live Christianly and live out our Christian life in the midst of all of these unique cultural challenges. And uh, for the Christian, we always need to say that uh, whatever we face in our current culture is what God has for us to face. But there is always a way to live Christianly, no matter how the culture uh, progresses in terms of technological advancement or uh, travel advancement, for example. Um, you know, we can roam freely about the world in ways that uh, we couldn't historically. Um, so there are always different uh, different aspects of simply living, but one truth never changes, which is that we can live according to the word of God and live out our Christian life in fear and admonition of the Lord, or we can choose to uh, be tossed about to and fro by every wind of doctrine or uh, or really, you know, any sort of cultural change. And so we do need to be very, very careful as Christians to make sure that we are living um, a life that is intentional and that is intentionally Christian-filled and honoring the Lord and not just passively accepting the cultural narrative and the cultural tools that are available to us. And that is in every uh, specter of life. That is not just uh, with technology and the online social media. That's even with some of the tools of culture, um, like, for example, psychology. Um, my my mom actually is a, a biblical nuthetic counselor, which um, if, for those of you familiar with uh, Pastor John MacArthur's ministry and the Master's College and um, some of the differences between so-called Christian psychology versus um, understanding biblically based counseling, um, the difference really is are we using the biblical worldview to address heart and spiritual problems or are we approaching sin using the secular uh, psychology that has excised God from the analysis. And obviously that's not to say that medical advancements or, you know, things that deal with the physical body, um, you know, some of these uh, sects that are, in my opinion, not not really Christian, um, and, and some of them don't even claim to be, um, but some that would say, well, we just have to, you know, pray and trust God for healing and not use uh, any sort of medical advancement uh, that we have discovered as human beings. Well, I wouldn't subscribe to that at all because um, we have discovered more uh, about the world around us and we have been able through the blessings of the Lord um, found medications and found, um, you know, other ways that um, hospitals can do miraculous things now that are tools that God has given us. But we always have to make sure that we are using tools available that are not in conflict with what we know about truth and we know about scripture. Um, and that does include medication, for example. So if we are using uh, medication and there are so many people that are on um, antidepressants and um, all kinds of medication to address sin problems or address feelings or address um, things that genuinely are the province of the church and of correct biblical thinking that um, that I believe in in a lot of instances, not all, you know, and every every situation has to be analyzed differently. But as a general principle, 
we should never be using medication or you know, drugs, other types of drugs or alcohol, whether the drug is prescription or illegal, right? Um, using drugs, alcohol, um, sex, I mean, any of these things that are more of an escapism rather than dealing with the root issue and uh, dealing with our heart condition, which is that man is fallen and that uh, the soul way that we can uh, live rightly is coming into a saving knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and repenting for our sin and being daily conformed to the image of Christ. And a lot of these things um, that my mom would tell you, and I'll have to have her on the show sometime to talk more about uh, biblically-based counseling, because I've learned so much just um, from the lecture series that she teaches um, and and from you know how her ministry has developed over the last about 15 years um, that she's been a marriage and family counselor. I've learned so much about um, the distinctions between uh, biblically-based counseling and using the tools of uh, a secular society to address sin problems that are totally, totally not adequate. I mean, it would be like going to... Uh, big government and politics to say, well, we need to have the government as the solution for our sin problem in society. That's not what the government is designed to do. The government cannot, through uh, any sort of mechanism, change hearts and minds. That is the province of the church. And that's why we as Christians should be fulfilling the Great Commission daily and seeking to impact and influence first and foremost, our families, then our church communities, and those we're accountable to and who are accountable to us, and then our greater civil society by promoting the truth of the Lord. And civil government can have some uh, restraint and punishment and deterrence. All of those things are meaningful applications of justice, and they are part of a moral and upright society. It's not to say, well, just because uh, everybody has a different opinion on God and on uh, morality and all of that, then the civil government has to go along with uh, anybody's idea of the measurable difference between right and wrong and good and evil. I mean, this is why we all have to have a common understanding of who we are as human beings, where our rights come from, and what the design and purpose of civil government is. Because if everybody is just free to do whatever is right in their own eyes, then we are in a completely anarchy-based society that uh, harm and evil can be perpetuated prolifically without the legitimate restraints of government. So government needs to enact meaningful justice, and this is why Romans 13 talks about the government carrying the sword. Uh, but we also have to remember that the civil government is not the church. And, and the civil government and that institution, just like secular-based philosophies of any sort, whether it's a psychology or whether it's, you know, any kind of economic theory or whether it's, uh, you know, a parental rights analysis or any sort of subject matter, is not going to address the basic heart condition of man uh, that is fully only made whole through the saving knowledge of the truth of God himself. And that is why we have to be continual advocates of living in a society that we are free 
to exercise our religion and our faith and to address man's sin problem from a foundation of the truth and an actual application of what is the solution. And so we can't take the tools of uh, the secular leftists that are devoid of God and try to then put uh, those solutions into civil society and think that we're going to solve any of these problems. I mean, when I was um, still primarily practicing uh, criminal law, I was first a prosecutor, then a criminal defense attorney in in Colorado for a number of years. And it was always fascinating to me um, the lack of genuine restorative and rehabilitation solutions that the justice system had available. Well, why? Because they're not a church. And so while a lot of judges and and many of them, at least, you know, back then, I'm not so so sure if it's, um, you know, the same in in Colorado anymore, but a lot of judges would encourage defendants to get engaged in, you know, what they would just say is your spiritual life or church community or, you know, something like that, but they can't mandate that. And so the tools available to the justice system to deal with rehabilitation uh, really are just about restraint and punishment and saying, uh, well, if you don't want to be back in front of me, defendant, you know, as a judge, then you're going to take steps to figure out your problem and to make sure that um, you are not continuing to reoffend. Um, but the, the only solution, uh, other than external restraints, um, is a complete transformation of the heart. And this is why when we are, as Christians, advocating for biblical solutions to policy issues on things like, for example, abortion. Yes, we should make it illegal, absolutely, and that external restraint over people who don't care and would choose frivolously and sinfully to get an abortion. But that we shouldn't stop there, and we shouldn't think that that is the full solution. A moral and upright society will have laws that reflect good and sound and wise uh, decisions that are based in truth. But we should be advocating for uh, every mother to not just not choose abortion because it's illegal, but because it's unthinkable. And so when we look at what's going on in the the criminal context of our society, um, and we think, you know, how can these people commit such atrocities? It's because our culture is using so many solutions and trying to employ so many solutions that simply don't work. We have excised God from civil society, and we are suffering the consequences. And you can see that in how uh, our civil society continues to have headline after headline of all of these just really heinous and disgusting behaviors. I was reading a headline just the other day, um, about uh, someone, I think it was in Queens, New York, if I'm not mistaken. And um, you know, it was this guy that was um, you know, in his 20s and was riding like a moped or something and just randomly uh, shot multiple people on the street. And one of them was um, an elderly uh, father or grandfather that was uh, you know, taking some younger kids, um, I don't know if it was his kids or his grandkids, um, to a mosque. And just in, in the middle of the day was just, you know, shot dead. And and you have to sit there and think, what type of person could so intentionally and frivolously commit that type of atrocity? And with just such disrespect and devaluing of human life. Well, I would submit that it's because our culture is telling all of our young people that life doesn't matter, that their own life doesn't matter. 
that they're only here because their mom chose life, but she could have um, chosen to not want them and that would have been okay morally. And to say that, you know, you're nothing but um, a a blob of cells that randomly mutated uh, from a premise of evolution. Um, you know, I mean, we, we've, we, we've, if we look at the Bible and we take it seriously, we know that God created. We are not accidents. We are not in the wrong bodies where our civil society is telling uh, all of our young people that based on how you feel, um, your body may not line up with your feeling. And so you may have been born in the wrong body. I mean, all of these things are devaluing human life. And they are trying to decouple our physical reality with our spiritual reality. And we are looking at solutions then that are over medication and just to mask the feelings. And then we have, I mean, and the statistics are just wild about how many people are taking antidepressants, taking SSRIs, taking all of these medications that they're trying to deal with feelings um, and, and other things that um, that their psychologists are telling them are are never going to be resolved because it's just here, take this medication, don't feel bad anymore. That's that's only addressing a symptom, not addressing the fundamental heart condition. And the Bible tells us very clearly that we as human beings are made in the image of God, have inherent dignity and worth, and God has chosen us at a specific time and place in history to be born, have life, and have a purpose, and have a calling and a vocation that is ultimately in service to him from the moment that we are conceived until he returns or calls us home, which is natural death. And so we can have purpose. And and, I mean, everybody feels you know, depressed or angry or sad or, or discouraged or, you know, some of those things. I mean, those are natural emotions, but we don't look to the world for the solutions and the cures to that. We don't look to being more online as a solution and a cure to that. We look to the truth of God to say, you know what, I I shouldn't be discouraged because the Bible says be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. And then the peace that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We have these great and precious promises from the Lord that deal with our feelings and provide genuine solutions for how to move forward in our Christian lives. And and so kind of, you know, in, in summary of talking uh, through this whole episode about uh, being so online or dealing with the problems that are in our culture, every human being since the fall of man, um, all the way throughout human history, and the Bible is full of uh, true stories of people who lived were confronted with the issues of their day with terrible culture that was evil, that rejected God, that had problems, and how Christians could live and God's people could live in light of the truth in their day. That is the great and precious promise for us. How do we live Christianly in our day? We are called to be here God, for his sovereign purposes, has ordained you and me to have our lives today in 2023. So the question is, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to raise your children? How are you going to participate in your church and civil society and live according to the truth?